Well, it is great to be with all of you today, and I'm especially honored to be invited into your home, those of you who are watching with us today through Faith Troy at Home. Just a reminder that coming up this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. It is the beginning of Lent already, and so we will have a worship service here at 6.30 on Wednesday night. We will be here in person. We will be in your home uh, with you watching online if you would like to join us online. For those of you who are here in person, on Wednesday at 5 p.m. we will have our soup supper, so I hope that you will join us for that. Now, for these past two weeks, we have been in a series called Hiding Place. And throughout this series, we have been talking uh, about what it is that Jesus wants to build in every single one of us as we spend a lifetime following him. And we've said um, that it's a faith that actually overwhelms and it overshadows fear. And every single week in this series, uh, we've kind of paused for a moment to look at this and to think about this and, and to really reflect on it and say, okay, out of all the things, I mean, think about it, of all the things that Jesus would want to do in any of us, in you, in me, in any of us, over the course of a lifetime, right? Over the course of a lifetime. Why in the world would this be the thing? Why would this be the goal or, or the destination where Jesus wants to bring all of us to? And we said each week um, we made some kind of surprising and sometimes unexpected discoveries. We said that this really, um, this kind of faith, this is the, the only kind of faith really um, that, that uh, is most honoring. This is the kind of faith that is most honoring to our Heavenly Father. We said, remember, um, think about being a parent, right? And, and overhearing one of your, your kids uh, say to, to their friends, yeah, I know that's what my dad did, but I trust my dad, so I, I believe my dad will do what he said he would do. I, I know that's what my mom did, but I trust my mom, so I believe my mom will do what she said she will do. We said, imagine hearing your, your, parent, your kids talk to one of their friends that way. How honoring would that be for you? Um, or for me as a parent. And when we said this kind of faith, this is the only kind of faith um, really that frees us to love other people. Because Jesus came into our world to love the whole world. And so as his followers, that means that Jesus actually wants us to love the whole world. And the only way that we can do that is to get rid of the fear of the things and get rid of the fear of the people that can hurt us in this life. And then last week we, we talked about the fact that this kind of faith, this, this fearless and confident faith, we talked about the challenge of having this kind of faith in the midst of unanswered and unfulfilled prayers. Because we feel like oftentimes those experiences communicate to us that God isn't paying attention to us, that God isn't, isn't, doesn't care for us, that he's not with us, that somehow we've been abandoned. And we saw how the emotion of shame that all of us have experienced in the midst of those moments, how the emotion of shame can try to force us or pull us away from our Heavenly Father. And yet we were reminded through a powerful section of Scripture that Jesus felt that kind of shame. Jesus felt the shame of unanswered, unfulfilled prayers. And instead of letting that separate him from his Heavenly Father, he sat down right next to, at the right hand. He scorned that shame. And he sat down right next to, at the right hand of his heavenly father, which is exactly where Jesus invites you. It's exactly where Jesus invites me. We discovered that the idea of having a, a fearless and confident faith, it does not mean um, that we never experience the emotions of fear or anxiety. Rather, it means in the midst of experiencing emotions. Um, that cause all kinds of fear and anxiety in every single one of us. It's in the midst of experiencing those feelings that Jesus shows us that a fearless faith is about learning how to trust our Heavenly Father in those moments when I fear and when you fear the most. 
And so today, as we wrap up this series together, I want us to look at one more section of Scripture that, um, that really is, is awe-inspiring, um, and it's also very challenging. It's challenging because it reminds us that this kind of a faith, a faith that actually overwhelms and it overshadows fear, that this was never meant just for me or, or you, that this kind of faith was actually meant for everyone. It reminds us that this kind of faith, that there is an original version of faith in Jesus that had its primary apologetic rooted um, in these three things right here. That there was once a, a version of faith that, that caused people um, to, to look in and to lean in as strange as, as what um, oftentimes is heard or taught or what is meant when we, when we talk about things about Scripture. There's once a version of faith um, that caused people who lived in a culture very different than the kind of culture that Jesus taught about, who lived in a world very different than the, the teachings of Jesus. There is once a version of this kind of faith that caused people to actually lean in and pay attention rather than turn away. Now, the event that we're going to read about together today, it takes place about two months after Jesus is crucified. And so all the events, all the experiences, all the emotions of that event, of the crucifixion, they are very fresh in the minds and in the hearts of Jesus' followers. And again, it takes place just two months, not two years, not 20 years, not 120 years, just two months. And it's found in the book of Acts chapter 3. If you want to follow along with us, you can use the Church Center app, you can use the Bible in front of you, you can use your outline. And as we said in the first week of this series, um, the Gospels are all about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels are all about Jesus, um, but the book of Acts is all about the apostles after the resurrection of Jesus. And this is really important for you to, to know and for us to remember, especially um, if you're new to church or if you're new to Jesus or uh, maybe you wouldn't quite describe yourself or think of yourself yet as being a follower of Jesus. Um, but what we're going to read together today, this isn't a Bible lesson, this isn't a Bible story, this is not a myth, um, it's not a legend, it's not a fairy tale, it's not any of those things. Um, this is, in fact, a historical event that took place about two months after Jesus was crucified. And a doctor by the name of Luke was so intrigued and so interested in all things Jesus that he went out and he interviewed all the eyewitnesses that he could find that could speak firsthand about the events of Jesus' life. He interviewed all of them, took all that information, and he compiled a record of those interviews, of those accounts. And then he began to travel all throughout the Roman Empire with another person that is going to be familiar to many of us, a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, otherwise known as the Apostle Paul, who planted um, the first churches all throughout the Greek and, and the Roman, uh, Roman, Greek and Roman cities, and who found a way to communicate with a culture that was so completely contrary to the teachings of Jesus, and yet he was remarkably, remarkably successful in doing that. And while Luke's gospel is a compilation of all these first-person accounts, the book of Acts is, in fact, Luke's first-person eyewitness testimony about all the things that took place after Jesus rose from the dead. And Luke tells us that immediately following the resurrection, there was all kinds of questions. There was lots of discussion going on about Jesus because there were Jesus sightings that were happening everywhere in those first two months after the crucifixion. And so the apostles, these 12 famous guys that we hear about, they very quickly became the spokesmen of this brand new movement called The Way. It wasn't called Christianity at this point. It was just, it was just simply called The Way because Jesus often said that he was the way. And he was the truth, and he 
was the life. And so Luke tells us that in this one particular event, um, that, that Peter and John, they were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at about three in the afternoon. And the temple was this massive structure that was surrounded by a 30-acre parcel of land elevated on the top of a mountainside. And so there's a a number of different entrances to get inside the temple mount. Um, There's even more entrances to get inside the temple itself. And as they're going up, as Peter and John are going up one of these staircases to get to the temple, Luke tells us that they find a man who is crippled, right? A man who was crippled from birth, and he was being carried to the temple gate that was called Beautiful. Luke actually tells us a little bit later on, this man was over 40 years old. So every single day, all of his life, for more than 40 years, he's carried outside the temple where he goes every day to beg from those who are inside or on their way inside to the temple courts. Which means that the people living in the vicinity of Jerusalem, the people living around the temple, they had seen this man, this same man begging day after day after day for years. And so he sees Peter and John coming inside the temple, and so he goes to Peter and John, and he asks them for money, but Peter and John can't give him any money because they don't have any money. And so Peter looks at him, and he says, okay, well, what I do have, I'm going to give you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Now, you got to try to put yourself in this moment and picture this. This man is over 40 years old. He has never walked a day in his life. And all of a sudden, Luke tells us he stands up and he begins walking around. They heal this guy. And so, of course, he follows Peter and John exactly to where Peter and John are going. They're going to the temple. He's now going into the temple. And people are seeing this guy, and they're pointing at him, and they're elbowing each other, and they're saying, like, is this the same guy? Like, and sure enough, it is. And so pretty soon, people gather around to see what's going on. This causes a crowd to develop. There's all kinds of commotion that happens. Peter and John are talking to all these people, and suddenly Peter decides this is the perfect moment to preach. But that's actually a problem because now they're preaching about Jesus inside the temple. And so the religious leaders, the temple authorities, they all come over to see what all this commotion is about. They hear Peter talking about Jesus again, and so Luke tells us that they arrest Peter and John. And because it was nighttime, the authorities, they just, they just left him in jail until the next day. And so again, kind of a recap of what's happened so far. Peter and John have just been arrested. Right, they've been arrested by the very same people who two months earlier arrested Jesus. Right, two months ago, Peter and John, with their own eyes, saw Jesus arrested. They saw him tried. They saw him beaten, tortured, and ultimately executed, crucified in this very same place by these very same people. Sitting, and now they're sitting in the very same jail that Jesus himself once sat in, right before he was executed. And they realize that chances are they will never again see the light of day. The next day, all the same religious leaders, all the people who presided over Jesus' execution, Caiaphas, Annas, Luke tells us all of them, everyone at Jesus' trial, they were all there. They send for Peter and John, and they tell them, and they start looking at these guys, and they say, okay, what in the world is wrong with you? Why won't you just, like, shut up already about this whole Jesus thing? Like, it is over. This is done with. We're not doing this anymore. Why can't you just let it go and just get on with your lives? And Luke tells us that once again, in front of this whole group of people that just executed Jesus two months ago, Peter once again decides to preach. He's eyeball to eyeball. He's just a few feet away from this room of men. And he looks at all of them and he says, listen, um, you crucified him, but God raised him. 
and then staring at this group of people that he knew would decide his fate. Peter ends his little sermon by making a statement that this group of people found to be extremely, extremely offensive. Jesus, Peter looks at them and says, listen, salvation is found. Right? Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Right? And it's like, okay, how narrow? Right? How unfair? And listen, if you are not a follower of Jesus or maybe you used to be a follower of Jesus, chances are this statement right here and what it's telling us, right? Chances are this is probably one of the reasons why you aren't. I get it. Or maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but if you're honest, every once in a while you, you, you think to yourself, um, you, you think, like, like, really? Really? I mean, how, how can we say this? How do we know? I mean, who, who are we to say that there is no other way? I mean, how do we even know that? How, how, what gives us the right to say that? And see, here's what's so important for us to remember. We didn't make this up, Right? The Apostle Peter, standing in front of a group of people that he knew would determine whether or not he lived or died, he looked at them right in the eye and he said, listen, you crucified him, God raised him, and there is no other name. There is no other name under heaven by which we are saved. And listen, if this is where you struggle, if you, honestly, I get it, I understand, if this is, if this is your struggling point, Right? When it comes to Jesus, if this is the part you're not quite certain of when it comes to Jesus, I get it. Right? I get it. I would just ask you um, to try to hear these words through the experience of Peter and John. Because Peter and John had seen their best friend, their leader, their teacher, their rabbi. They saw him two months earlier beaten, tried, tortured, crucified, dead, and buried, and then a couple days later they had breakfast with him on a beach. Listen, and when you have breakfast with, with someone who used to be dead on a beach, listen, you say things like this. When you have breakfast with a guy who was dead a couple of days ago, and he tells you that he is the son of God, he tells you that he is the savior of the world, listen, I think you get a little excited. And I think you believe whatever it is he tells you. And so Peter, right, Peter, two months earlier, again, remember, think about this. Two months earlier, Peter, who was so intimidated by a middle school girl that he denied even knowing Jesus, now, two months after, right, two months after the resurrection, suddenly Peter is in a room and he's staring down the very same people who had Jesus killed and executed, and he's telling all of them, listen, you killed the Son of God, but don't worry, because God raised him from the dead. And regardless of what you say, and regardless of what you do to me, Peter said, you need to understand. You need to understand, there is no other name. There is no other name under heaven by which we are saved. Annas, Caiaphas, all of us, you, all of you, you need to understand. You need to know. There is no one else. There is no other name that saves us. And then Luke tells us, Luke tells us that when they, right, this is Annas, Caiaphas, the high priest, the Jewish ruling council, everybody, when they saw all the people present at Jesus' execution, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, 
And they realized that they are nothing more than unschooled, ordinary men. They're just a couple fishermen. They were astonished because they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And then Luke gives us this very interesting bit of information that we oftentimes miss, especially if this story is familiar to you. But since they could see, since the Jewish ruling council, the high priest, since all of them could actually see the man who had been healed, right? Because they brought him in too. Since they could actually see this guy who was just miraculously healed standing in front of them, there was nothing. There was nothing that they could say. Everybody believed that God has done a miracle through the words of, of these men. Everybody thinks that God has done this miraculous, incredible sign through the words of these men. And so Peter, they just, they, they send Peter and John out of the room. They send the guy who was formerly crippled out of the room. They talk amongst themselves and they're like, what do we even do with this? How do we handle this? Everyone believes God has done a miracle through them. And so Luke tells us that the, the, the whole group of people, they bring Peter, they bring John, they bring the formerly crippled guy, they bring them all back in, and they threaten all of them, and they tell all of them, um, just keep your message to yourself and don't ever speak again in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Right? And where do you think Peter and John after this, where do you think Peter and John went? Did they go rent themselves a couple of mules and hightail it off into the wilderness never to be seen again? Right, saying to themselves, hey, we're so lucky, right? We, we, we just barely made it out of there alive. Is that what they did? No. Because, right, when you have breakfast with somebody who rose from the dead, think about that. You lose all your fear and you lose all your concern about this life. And so Peter and John, they actually decide to go back to where the other followers of Jesus are who are waiting and wondering and praying and, and trying to wrap their minds around the idea that possibly they're going to have to attend two more crucifixions. Right? Peter and John, they go back to this group. They report about everything that happened. And then Luke tells us that in that moment they had a prayer meeting. And Luke actually records for us, beginning in verse 24, what it is that that prayer meeting sounded like after everything they had been through. After everything that they had experienced, after what almost happened to them. And before we read this together, here's the thing, the question I just want you to think about for a minute. Like, what would you pray in this situation? Right? This is what I want you to think about. What would you pray if this had been you? If you had just gotten out of jail, right, and you know that the people who, who were threatening to kill you, they just killed your best friend, right? What would you do in that moment? They're in the same place that all these events happen, that happened to Jesus, they happen to them. They, they know as followers of Jesus they're being watched. They know they're being followed right now. Right? What would you pray? What would I pray? Luke actually tells us what they prayed. In verse 24, Luke tells us this. He says this, when they heard, that is when the, when the other followers of Jesus heard the whole story from Peter and John, when they heard, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And this is their prayer. Sovereign Lord. Right, in other words, God, we recognize, we recognize that you are in charge of everything that is happening right now. Right? Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. Isn't this how we pray? Right? No, we say, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, right? How small? How small? 
Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Right? In other words, God, we recognize, we recognize that you are the one who is in charge of everything that's happening right now. We recognize, even though it looked like Emperor Tiberius was in charge, no, God, we understand, no, you are the one who is in charge. You are the one who is in charge of everything that is happening in our world. You spoke, they continue, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Right? This is King David. And so they recognize that what's happening right now, that what is happening right now is actually a fulfillment of something that King David wrote a thousand years earlier. And so they quote from one of David's psalms, Psalms 2, where David said this. He said, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Right, again, this is written, David writes this a thousand years before Jesus is even born. And David isn't writing about events happening in his own day. No, David is looking forward to some day in the future where God would actually keep his promise when God would send his anointed one, his Messiah. And so they quote this psalm because they believe that that day has finally arrived. That what David spoke of, what Isaiah spoke of, what all the prophets spoke of, what they all looked forward to, the coming of God's anointed one, that that had happened. That God finally fulfilled his promise by sending Jesus. And so they stop quoting the psalm. And then they recognize, and listen to this, if this is familiar to you, don't miss this, especially in our current world. They recognize how the events that they just experienced over these past two months, these two months that left them in fear and anxiety, they recognize how those events were actually used and the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so they say this, they say, King Herod, indeed, King Herod and Pontius Pilate, they met together with the Gentiles in this city. And the people of Israel to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Right? In other words, we recognize, God, that, that, that what you said was going to happen, it did happen. That they, this was talking about our master, Jesus. When they, Pilate and the Jewish ruling council, the high priest, they simply did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, God, we now understand that none of this took you by surprise. And listen, because none of this took you by surprise, then God, we cannot be afraid. And we realize we do not have to worry because God, none of this, none of this was un unknown to you. None of this was a surprise to you. But God, we do have a request. We do have a request, keeping in light of what everything that's happened. God, here is our request. And Luke tells us in verse 29, this is what they asked for. Now, Lord, protect us. Watch over us. Keep us safe. Cause our checking accounts to grow and our waist size to shrink. Lord, let my team win. Let the other team fail miserably. Lord, help me to remember the information I studied yesterday, even though I'm going to spend all day today binging on Netflix. And let me pass the test that I am not prepared for. It's funny, but it's embarrassing, isn't it? I mean, do you, you ever wonder, honestly, I mean, why is it that sometimes it seems like so little 
happens around us? Could it possibly be that in those moments when we feel the most anxious and the most fearful and the most afraid, the natural thing that we all do, me included, is I just pray for me? But what the apostles are beginning to understand, right? They're, what they're beginning to understand is that perhaps, even in the midst of fearful circumstances, even in the midst of things they don't understand, that perhaps God is working. This is what they actually prayed. Now, Lord, consider their threats, because their threats are real. There are people who are trying to hurt us. There are people who are trying to plot evil against us. Lord, their threats are real. So consider their threats. But here's what we want you to do. Not protect us. No, enable us. In spite of the threats, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. The Greek word here actually means confidence. It means openness. It means unhinderedness. Right, to which we're tempted to say, listen, I think it was speaking about Jesus openly and boldly and confidently that got you thrown in jail in the first place. Maybe you should just tone it down a little bit. But see, in this moment, what these followers of Jesus are beginning to understand is that maybe what was happening around them, what was happening through them, the faith that they were beginning to experience, this faith that overwhelms and it overshadows fear, that that wasn't just for them that that was actually something for the entire world. So they prayed accordingly. Right? Listen to what they said. This is amazing. Stretch out your hand. Right? Don't miss this. Not for our benefit. Not, not to heal me, Lord. Not to bless me, Lord. No, Lord, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, so that everyone will know that Jesus is, in fact, your one and only son. And then Luke tells us that after they prayed, the place where they were meeting, it was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they all spoke the word of God boldly confidently, openly, unhindered. Now, we need to pause here for just a moment and we need to talk about this word for just a second right here, bold. Okay, this is really important. Please do not miss this. Boldness is not weirdness. Boldness is not loudness. Boldness is not anger and boldness is not hate. Right? Boldness is none of those things. Boldness is all about opportunity. Boldness is about taking advantage of the opportunities that our Heavenly Father presents us with in all situations. That's what's happening throughout the course of this event. Right? Boldness is actually deciding to say something when it would be much easier to say nothing at all. Boldness, right? Boldness, in fact, think about it this way. Aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful that someone was actually bold with you? Aren't you grateful that somebody actually took a chance, they took a risk, and they were open with you, they were, they were confident with you about what they knew about Jesus. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you grateful that there was a group of followers of Jesus someplace who, who, who you didn't even know that gave up some of their time, they gave up some of their money, they gave up um, some of their, their resources, their giftedness, their energy to make a place and create an opportunity for you? You, you didn't even know them yet, and yet they did that for you. That's boldness, that's openness, that's opportunity. 
Boldness is what made the church a movement and not simply another institution. And see, Luke tells us that these first followers of Jesus, when they went out and they spoke the word of God boldly, he gives us this key piece of information. He tells us that they did this in such a way that people were, in fact, drawn to Jesus. And see, their boldness, right? Listen, don't miss this. Their boldness, it was, not, uh, it was not about doctrine. It was not about heaven or hell. Their boldness didn't even focus on sin. Their boldness was all about a singular event that is at the center of absolutely everything that we believe as followers of Jesus. Luke tells us that the apostles, right, with great power, the apostles, they continued to testify to the what of the Lord Jesus? The teachings of the Lord Jesus? No. The parables? No. The stories? No. The activities of the Lord Jesus? No. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Their confidence, it was not linked to some change in personal status. Their confidence was in no way linked to, to some increase in their influence. Their confidence was not linked to some sudden elevation of, of their status within society or culture. It wasn't linked to a, some type of stabilizing force that happened in society. It, it was not linked to any of those things. None of that changed in the course of those two months. None of the things that caused them fear and anxiety previously went away. All of them were exactly the same. Their confidence, their openness, it was rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. And see, here's the amazing thing about this. Because they believed that Jesus rose from the dead, they were fearless. They learned how to trust their Heavenly Father in spite of their fears. And whenever you have that kind of fearlessness, it always results in selflessness. Because when you stop fearing personal loss, you become more selfless. When you stop fearing personal loss, you become more generous. When you stop fearing personal loss, you become more compassionate. And it was the generosity, it was the compassion, and it, and it was the, um, the, 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 the selflessness the selflessness of these first century followers of Jesus that caused a pagan, fearful culture to lean in. And see, do you know why we can not be afraid as followers of Jesus? Do you know why um, we can actually live with confidence as, and openness as followers of Jesus? Do you know why we can be confident in our faith? and confident of what it is that we believe. It's not because threats get eliminated. It's not because laws get passed. Right? It's not because of any of those things. The reason we have confidence, the foundation of our confidence, the reason that we can actually live without fear, in spite of what is happening around us, is because God raised Jesus from the dead. And because he lives, right, you and I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, then we no longer need to live in fear. Because he lives, you and I can actually be confident. Because he lives, we can be compassionate, we can be generous, we can be selfless and attentive to the needs of other people. Because he lives, we can live in a way that draws people in as opposed to pushing them away. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, 
Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful people so that you, so that you, so that you, so that you, so that you would not grow weary and lose heart. What will one day be said about our generation of church? What will the story of our race, what is that going to sound like someday to the generations coming after us, to the generations coming behind us? Will it sound like this? As the rhetoric in the nation grew louder and louder and as it got nastier and nastier, not only in America but all throughout the world, as people took sides, as compassion waned, as division increased, as circumstances got progressively worse, there were some who seemingly, surprisingly, were not afraid. They were informed. Absolutely, but they were not panicked. They were involved. They were very involved. They were very engaged, but they were in no way divisive. They were responsible, and yet they were still compassionate and kind. They had personal conviction, absolutely, but they were in no way judgmental. It seemed as if they had found a refuge from all the storms. It seemed almost as if they found a place to hide from trouble, but not from life. They were the followers of Jesus. And the amazing thing about them is the worse things got around them, the better they got. What will be said about our generation of church? Because understand, we do not go to church. We are church. We are the stewards of what it means to follow Jesus in this generation, in this race, the one that our Heavenly Father has marked out for us. So here's the question I want to leave you with. What do we want to live out for the next generation in response to the fearfulness and the anxiety of life in this generation? And see, once again, it's Luke who gives us a big, big hint. Because Luke tells us that there was absolutely something that was powerfully at work amongst the followers of Jesus in the first century. Amongst all the anxiety, all the loss, all the persecution, in the midst of all the unknowns and all the worry, there was absolutely something that was so powerfully at work 
Was it God's hate? No. Was it his anger? No. Was it his wrath? No. Was it apathy? Was it indifference? No. Luke tells us very clearly, very specifically, it was God's grace that was so powerfully, so powerfully at work among them all, the followers of Jesus. Heavenly Father, Father, my prayer for us today, not only for our church, but Father, for the church, your church, the followers of Jesus, wherever they're found in our world today. Father, my prayer, Holy Spirit, my prayer for all of us is that one day, someday, the story of our race would be worth telling. Not because of us, but because of following you, Jesus. The story of our race, the one that you have marked out for us to run in this moment, that that story would glorify you, they would bring honor to you. Father, that the people around us who, who do not know your son Jesus as their Lord and their Savior, that they would see something co so compelling, so intriguing in us, not because of us, but in us through you, that they would see something so different and so inviting that, Holy Spirit, you would allow them to lean in, to ask a question, and that as your church, that we would be bold, meaning we would look for opportunities, that we would work together to create opportunities for people to come where we can bring Jesus into every relationship, opportunities where we do have to say something, and Father, we know that's never easy, but we know it's why we're here. We know it's the race you've called us to. And so Holy Spirit, we simply ask you to give us the grace we need to love you, to love each other, and to love our world well. Jesus, the way you have loved so well. We ask all of this, Jesus in your name.